Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast, focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Learn the economics and technology of Bitcoin. So today, for episode 80, my guest is Richard Myers. He's decentralization engineer at Gotenna and also working on a new proposal called Lot49 with Global Mesh Labs. I think this is exciting because it's using Bitcoin to help enable mesh networking and provide an incentive for people to provide alternative means of communication and sending encrypted messages. But before that, a quick word for my sponsors. So firstly, have you checked out Kraken? Over my years in Bitcoin, I've been impressed in, with the way Kraken operate. They have a very, very strong focus on security. In my view, they've acted ethically in the space under Jesse Powell's leadership. They are one of the longest standing Bitcoin exchanges and they're consistently rated the best with a high quality platform. They offer some of the best liquidity in the industry also. They've got high trading volume and low fees with no minimum or hidden fees. They've also got 24-7 support so I found it extremely fast to go through the sign-up process as an individual. If you're on the institutional or business solution side, Kraken are also quite popular there. They've got many customers ranging from funds and asset management, trading firms, crypto businesses. Kraken offer the highest available API rate limits and there's a Kraken OTC desk. They also offer margin and futures trading. So to learn more and sign up, go to the Kraken link in the show notes. Next, have you looked into Unchained Capital? They're a Bitcoin financial services company offering a really cool two of three keys multi-signature vault product. You can use Trezor or Ledger wallets and you still maintain control with your two keys and reduce the single point of failure risk. Multi-signature helps protect you against the proverbial $5 wrench attack as you can distribute your keys. I've set up a vault with Unchained and I've found it super simple and easy. If you create an Unchained vault, you also get three free months of access to Safety and Immerse's Bitcoin Standard Research Bulletin. Unchained also offers Bitcoin collateralized loans, allowing you to get USD liquidity without selling your Bitcoins, meaning you don't trigger a capital gains event. Consider your own scenario, but this can be tax efficient for a hodler, enabling them to continue their hodling rather than selling Bitcoins. While a loan is outstanding, your Bitcoin is stored in a dedicated multi-sig address under collaborative custody with Unchained, holding one of three keys, you would hold the second key, and Unchained's independent third-party key agent would hold the third key. So to learn more and sign up, go to unchained-capital.com. With that said, on to the interview. Richard, first of all, I just wanted to say uh, thanks for joining me on the show. Congrats on uh, the getting the highly contested lightning residency with Chaincode Labs and also some of the work you're doing now with Lot49. Thanks, Stefan. It's uh, been looking forward to chatting with you and uh, looking, yeah, pretty excited about the residency too. It's uh, really sort of drinking from a fire hose of information. <laughs> Fantastic. So look, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what you're doing now in terms of Gotenna and global uh, mesh networking. Yeah, sure. So um, Gotenna has basically spun off a subsidiary, uh, Global Mesh uh, Labs, just to pursue the, the Lot49 protocol and, and related technologies um, to, make it, uh, to make it something that's not just you know, a Gotenna product, but something that basically we want to open source and share with the world. So that's why we thought it made more sense to, to break it out into a, into a new kind of organization. Fantastic. So look, tell us a little bit about Maybe we could just start with what is the basic problem that mesh networking is trying to solve? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a few few kind of ways to look at it. One is just what we would call resiliency, uh, and that's you can think of things like natural disasters. Um, I mean, in the in um, Puerto Rico, they had Hurricane Maria, 
Um, that took out 97% of the infrastructure for communications and took, you know, months to recover. Um, you've even got, um, you know, places like highly connected places like New York or the eastern, you know, eastern part of the U.S., which was taken out by Hurricane Sandy, and that took out like a third of their communication infrastructure. Um, so basically, centralized systems are just inherently fragile and slow to recover. Um, so that's 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 a pretty, you know, that's probably um, maybe the first thing people think of when they think of mesh technology is, is that kind of resiliency. Um, but there's also man-made disasters. I mean, you can look at what's going on in Venezuela, and that's not a natural disaster, but there's certainly a man-made disaster, which is really impeding people's ability to communicate in uh, you know, and it has pretty serious consequences. Um, but then, but then censorship, uh, you know, that's actually pretty topical now to talk about because you see what's going on in um, Hong Kong right now, for example. Um, you've got you've got the Chinese government basically DDoSing the Telegram network to try to kind of quell some of those protests. Um, and you know, there's for a long time been something you know the Great Firewall of China, which everybody knows about, but. You know, if you think about it, they're really sort of normalizing a, an Orwellian censorship um, with with that great firewall. But uh, it's pretty scary when you when you think about it. Um, and and this whole idea of you know politically shutting down networks is is really pretty widespread, and I think you know potentially growing. You've got Sudan, Iraq, Algeria, Ethiopia. You know, these are all recent stories about censorship. Um, if, I think you've probably uh, followed Alex Gladstein. From the Human Rights Foundation, he does a, a great, you know, talk on this, and and the work they're doing is really, you know, co- covers a lot of these things going on around the world. Um, but then there's also surveillance. You know, besides just shutting down the network, you've also got this idea of sort of prevalent, per- pervasive surveillance. And again, we see this in Hong Kong. And this is again a recent story. Um, I, I read where the protesters aren't using cash to buy their to buy their train tickets to the protests because, you know, this stuff is all recorded. And, um, you know, Edward Snowden, it goes back to Edward Snowden, what he revealed, um, you know, basically is that the cypherpunks worst nightmares from the 90s of how credit cards and other, you know, financial information could be monitored um, has basically come to pass. I mean, it's, it's interesting to go back and read some of those cypherpunks because they were, they were worried about credit cards. <laughs> and now we just take it, you know, as sort of normal that this, uh, this metadata is basically being sucked up and used, not just by governments, but by, you know, by commercial interests. Of all of all sorts, um, and then of course go back to China. You know there is there is a pervasive um, surveillance state. Um, you know which just shows a sort of way that the world can go with technology, uh, and they're exporting that technology. New York Times had an article about that. So this isn't really just limited to China. This is a technology that's being exported and collaborated on with Western democracies as well. So there's there's quite a lot of uh, to to worry about in in that surveillance uh, realm, uh, and then I think the last thing that's worth mentioning is this idea of just last mile communities. There are a lot of places in the world, maybe not in you know Sydney or New York, but a lot of places that just aren't economical to really connect to the to the internet or or to the to the kind of wider world. Uh, and you know it would be nice to have a technology so these communities could connect themselves. And sort of keep some of that um, keep some of that incentive for, um, or what should I say? Basically, create their own infrastructure rather than rely on some centralized party to provide that infrastructure. So, yeah, those are those are probably the major motivations for mesh. Great, and I like the idea that you're mentioning around an incentive for it, right? So even with when it comes to things like natural disaster and last mile, some parallels that I'm thinking here as well is 
even during a natural disaster, there might be higher prices to go and buy water, for example. And that higher prices is also what attracts new suppliers of water, right? Because that's part of a market mechanism to kind of pull in resources there because it's saying, hey, we need water here. So now people who are entrepreneurial will think, hey, I, I can go buy some water somewhere <laughs> else where it's cheap and bring it to the disaster zone. So in the same way, that's probably one of the powers of this approach that I'm seeing with mesh, mesh networking and incentivizing it. Um, so that might be something we can get into. Yeah. I mean, you're, I know you've, you've got an economics background. So, I mean, that, that's, I think, what you're observing there is the power of incentives to fill market demand and create. And so what I guess you could look at incentives as a way of creating a market where there is no market right now, which is a market for communication. So I absolutely agree. Yeah, fantastic. So look, let's go into a little bit around how mesh networks work and how are they different from our current centralized options? Yeah. So mesh network and with a mesh network, your device, say your mobile phone, it's going to communicate with other mobile phones within radio range, within the range of its radio. Um, whereas in a centralized network, your mobile phone always talks to some central nearby base station, which is run by some, you know, one or many um, different mobile carriers. Um, but here you talk to your, you talk to just other people within radio range. And if the message you want to send has to go further, it can hop from device to device to device until it reaches its destination. And that network system might include gateways over the internet or might include gateways uh, you know, other sorts of gateways, satellite links, things like that. But generally, it's it's from sort of a peer node to a peer node. It's not something that goes through some hierarchy of communication that's centrally planned. Um, and the thing is, everybody has this technology in their pocket right now. Your phone does send and receive. It just doesn't send and receive to people nearby. It only sends and receives to this sort of locked down system that that you really don't have any control over. Um yeah. So, and, and, you know, the centralized carriers, they don't really have an incentive to unlock that potential for them. It's, it's, it would not be a revenue source if people could communicate without the centralized carrier. So, so that's, yeah, that's a very big difference. And with that, are there certain other benefits, I suppose, that can come with economies of scale using a centralized service or radio tower, let's say, and is that part of the challenge then with doing mesh networking is that you can't, you're sort of losing some of that economy of scale in the processing and networking of it? Yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, you've, you, you've seen this in the Bitcoin world too. You know, you can't really compare a Visa network, which is centralized on a database. That's always going to be a more efficient way to, to operate a system is in a centralized way. Um, efficient in the sense that, you know, you can plan where you put your cell towers to get good coverage. Uh, you can, you know, you can basically capitalize it. You can pay for bandwidth and spectrum um, because you've got a centralized organization doing all that, all that planning. Um, and then you can also, uh, you know, you can finance the start of a cell phone network. Whereas with a mesh network, you've got, you've always got this, it's like Bitcoin in the sense that you've got a zero start problem, we call it. So if you're the only one running on the mesh network, it's not very useful. This is like the telephone had this problem. If you're the only one with a telephone, how do you communicate with somebody else? Um, so overcoming that is something, you know, unique to a mesh network or any peer to peer network for that matter. Um, you've also got the fact that if you are relaying for other people, that means the battery of your mobile device, um, is being used not only for your own use, but to relay for other people. So how do you overcome this sort of power anxiety that, that might come from somebody, you know, worrying about their device being drained by, you know, by this relaying function? 
Uh, and then there's just sharing of spectrum, you know, assuming all these other things are solved, you want to make sure people fairly use the spectrum. You don't just get, you know, one person who's just blasting out all the time. Um, so there's a tragedy of the commons that has to be overcome. And that's a place where if it costs you a little something that that's like, you know, keeps people from essentially spamming this shared resource, uh, which is your spectrum. And, and maybe finally, just one other thing is a gateway is the idea that, you know, who's going to run a gateway unless they're incentivized. So if you want, you know, there are some, even though it's a flat peer to peer network, some nodes, some functionalities, um, do potentially take more planning and resources and you want to incentivize people to supply that, that resource to the other users. Interesting commentary. And so now, as probably most listeners would understand, that people have been working on mesh networks for a while. Is there a reason why it hasn't caught on until now or until until well, already? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I went back and did a little research just to see what the history was when I, when I wrote this Law 49 um, white paper. And it seems like there were quite a few attempts, you know, going back to the 90s. And a lot of those were initially, you know, some of them were, were just very simple based, you know, just trying to like solve some of these problems, like for instance, spectrum usage. Uh, but the ones that started to get into monetization, they only had sort of centralized payment systems to work from, they, you know, the equivalent of a PayPal. Um, and that, you know, that's the kind of system that really centralizes the mesh because now you're centralized over a single payment provider. And I mean, I don't know if that's the reason they didn't take off, but it's true that, it, that we're sort of at a, at a point now where you can, you can actually make your payment system as decentralized as your communication system. And, and I don't think that's, you know, there's really been no way to do that before, you know, Satoshi's white paper. So that, you know, that's one, one thing that I think probably helps us right now. Fascinating. It's, it's partly a technolo- technological answer that now we have decentralized money and potentially also now we have more surveillance. So there's more reason for people to try to use mesh networking. So look, let's talk a bit about Lot49. What is it? <laughs> okay. So uh, Lot49 is a protocol, you know, just like Bitcoin is a protocol. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a work in progress. So we're basically adapting the Lightning Network, which is a you know, which is a way to make micropayments between people. You know, that's, that's, that's the sort of fundamental function of, a, of, a, of the second layer protocol. Um, but, it, and a lot of people have made this observation and, and, and I think we're just sort of trying to realize this idea in a real concrete way um, to make it happen. And that is that the Lightning Network, it works, it works off chain, but it also essentially, there are aspects that essentially could also work off grid because working off chain is in essence working, you know, off grid. You don't you don't have to communicate to the internet to get to the blockchain when you do an off chain transaction. Um, so that this protocol, the Lot Forty Nine protocol, is is ways is basically an adaptation of the Lightning protocol um, to incentivize nodes to relay for other nodes. So just like in the Lightning network, you're you're incentivizing nodes to cha- to relay payments. Here we're relaying. Not you know we're not focusing on the payment part, but we're relaying we're focusing on the fact that these nodes are also relaying data, and each time they they pass a message from physical node to physical node, they can collect part of the lightning payment in the same way that lightning nodes collect a small fee for for relaying data uh, payments. Fascinating, and yeah, so I like the idea then that you know this is now a better attempt because now we've we've got a really more credible incentive for people to try and be a participant in this network and to provide some of their resources for this network because now they can get paid for it. Right. And so are we 
hopefully we're going to be opening up the internet to more people in more ways with this. Is that is that one of your hopes? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the, the the idea is that you can this network could reach in many more places, and you know, part of the reason to make it an open protocol like this too is that you know we don't want there to be a gatekeeper for people who want to basically use the network and who want to continue to develop the network. And I think that's going to help it reach places that a more centrally planned or centrally, even centrally sponsored sort of protocol couldn't reach. So, you know, we want to basically unlock people's ingenuity to create this permissionless marketplace, like what we talked about before for, for communication, essentially. Um, And then, you know, where it gets used, you know, we can't really even imagine where the first most useful place would be. Um, but it at least creates a protocol that people can use to to incentivize each other to sort of do this this bottom up this bottom up uh, bootstrap basically a bottom up uh, communication economy. Um, so that's yeah that's probably the the most important aspect of of, of that. Um, and and I think you know one one of the other getting back a little bit to your question about um, why now sort of like why can this happen after you know not being able to happen in the past. Part of it too is we actually, not just that we have more surveillance, but we actually have a community, the Bitcoin community, which is really focused on this question, has a very high value use for it. So I really look at that community as a sort of way to bootstrap the network in a way because they, you know, you've got, it doesn't have to be a large community to bootstrap something. You just need some people with a real interest. And it could be that Bitcoin community is that community that can kind of bootstrap this this idea fantastic let's talk about the basic approach now i've had a chance to read the paper but uh just for the listeners if you maybe you could just spell out some of the different ideas around the sender node the relay nodes and so on sure so uh you can sort of imagine the network is is having uh you know let's see we're like four or five different types of nodes uh or nodes that are playing different roles so you might have a sender the sender is going to be the one who wants to send some data somewhere. So if you think of, you know, we, I usually, because, yeah, so we, I usually think of it like an SMS message. I mean, there could be other data. You can, you know, you can have API data, for example, but, but just for now, it's simpler to think of it as like an SMS message. Um, and then, then there's going to be relays. So the relays are all the nodes around the sender who, who through a chain of, of relaying, get it to some destination node. And then there's, so that's the destination node. Um, and there may also be involved, depending on you know what stage of this communication you're in. There also may be gateway nodes involved, which are just nodes that are on both networks that are perhaps on the local mesh, and they may also be on inter- the internet in some way, either through a internet connection like a you know normal fiber connection, or or um, or it could be a mobile node that has mobile internet. Um, but that would be a gateway to the global internet. Uh, and then we have something that uh, is called a, that I call a witness node, but it's essentially a node that um, it would be online, so this wouldn't be a mesh node. The witness node would be you could think of it like a full node, if you will, which is able to um, handle the confirmation of a Bitcoin transaction because essentially you do just even in the Lightning Network, you do eventually have to settle and and monitor Bitcoin transactions. And we're not envisioning that happening on the mesh network itself. I mean, maybe someday that's possible, but right now we're trying to keep this sort of use of the communication of over the mesh network as, as small, as limited as possible. So, um, so you can think of the your these nodes as sort of from the Lightning standpoint, pretty light light clients. Um, so when the sender wants to send a message, they um, they're going to prepay in the sense of Lightning, which is the same way Lightning works. They're going to prepay some amount. 
Uh, and that prepayment is going to be encoded as sort of a, you can think of it as a header on the data message, which is going to go to the destination. And what that header does is it, it if there's already a channel with the relay that, that is along the route to the destination, it's going to commit to pay that next hop some amount of value. And then that process repeats from each relay to each relay, where, where the relays, again, like in the relay, or like in the Lightning Network, each relay is going to take a small cut. They're going to take a small fee uh, before transferring the data and the commitment to their next node until it gets to a destination. Uh, and then the destination is, again, going to get a, pre, a small prepayment. You know, we, we imagine um, you know, that's just something that the, the destination could either, it could either be a large payment to the destination if you were prepaying, say, for a reply message or just a small one. But the key is that just like in the Lightning Network, you want the destination to offer uh, or to reveal some secret. So when the sender put together this message for the destination, they encrypted their message. And in that message they encrypted, they're going to include um, what is the, what is the um, secret, essentially, in, 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 the light, in the Lightning sense. They call it a pre, pre-image, of, which is a secret that needs to be revealed by that destination. And, and when that's revealed, it flows backwards basically through a kind of delivery receipt mechanism. Uh, and this idea of including the secret in the message, that's not new to Lightning either. There's already been a lot of talk about that. I think uh, the light LND guys call it a Sphinx end. That's, that's the, the sort of nomenclature they use. But it's the same idea that you don't have to kind of negotiate an invoice. You just send that pre-image to your destination and they, they unwrap it when they get the message. Um, so that's sort of that, that's the path when all these channels are set up. Um, there's also a step where if, if a node doesn't have a channel set up, uh, and this is probably maybe the weakest part of the system is what do you do if there's no channel? Um, and what it, what you do need to do is you do, you need to, uh, open a channel like you would in the lightning network. And what that means is that the destination that you're opening with, whoever is funding that channel sends, you know, in the lightning sense, a setup transaction. Um, and that does have to somehow eventually get confirmed on the internet, on the blockchain. And, and this is something we wrestled with for a long time, but essentially there's just no clever way out of it. You, if you want to have a payment that's secured by the Bitcoin network, at some point you got to touch the Bitcoin network. Um, but the longer lived these channels are, then the less um, of a problem that is essentially. So, so we can get into that a little bit later, like what those trade-offs are, but so now, so now you can imagine this message flows through the relay. It gets confirmed by the destination, which reveals the secret. The secret flows back as a return receipt, and these lightning channels then update. So that's, the, that's sort of your basic, your basic control flow there. How do the nodes negotiate a payment, as in how much do they pay? And mm. I guess the other question is, if, if I'm a node, if I'm a sender node out somewhere and I don't have good connection, how do I then know oh yeah my payment my message got got through or maybe i need to bump it up a bit more and put more fee to kind of get it through yeah i mean like i said this is sort of a work in progress and some of those things we haven't quite you know figured out the best practice for my i have a few ideas which is what i what i put in this white paper and we're actually right now in the process of putting together some simulations to see sort of what might work best but my my basic idea is that um these nodes will publish some information about themselves. And some of that information might be how much they charge to relay data. Um, and, and or they could there could be a standard value because part of you could include that value in the message. 
You can also include it in the routing. So that's another proposal that that's been that's been suggested by our, our um, uh, you know routing protocol people is you can actually include that in the routing protocol. So when you, so the sender before they send, they might have a, a a computation from the routing protocol that tells them what the total cost is going to be. Uh, and that's also a kind of a guarantee too, because you want to avoid problems with nodes introducing fake links, um, you know, so that people trying to double dip by introducing fake, fake additional nodes. So probably the best, best approach is just to have a, a fixed fee. Um, but we, we recognize that there might be nodes that are in special positions and, you know, you want to encourage people to be in the right place at the right time. So, so there's also an advantage if people can publish what their fees are uh, and make that, make that part of the computation for the sender. So but that's a good question. And I think that's a place that we'd like to do more research for sure. And the other question then is how, how does the sender node, I guess what I'm trying to get at here is how does it find a route? Is there some sort of network graph here or what's the, how does that work? Yeah. Um, so if you look in the Lightning Network, they have a very specific routing protocol that, that they follow. And that's one place where we, we would differ from the, the Lightning Network sort of as it's currently implemented, um, because routing over a mesh network is a, is a very different kind of thing. And I would say that Gotenna as a company, for example, has probably, we've put most of our protocol effort to sort of to date into that question, because it's it's a challenge to do that in an efficient way so that you don't you don't use up sort of all of your battery and bandwidth just routing routing messages. <laughs> uh, you know, you want to actually route the data. So um, Rom, our chief scientist, he's recently published basically a paper describing what they call a, a zero overhead routing protocol, um, which is a way to to route these messages or to get a route without introducing additional protocol on top of the communication. Um, so, so from the standpoint of a node, it's just you get it from the routing protocol. But um, doing that in an efficient way is, is I guess, you know, something that each device is, is going to be a little different for each device. Excellent. And so the other thing is, obviously, we might be working with low-powered devices here. Are there any specific challenges presented by this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, the idea that, you know, people have this sort of, uh, you know, power anxiety, they don't want their, their system to run down. But you also, yeah, you, you also have the fact that it's a mobile network. Um, and so it will take power to relay messages. And, you know, without an incentive, people maybe aren't going to want to route for other people, especially if they're in a, in a high value position, they could end up routing a lot of messages, you know, rel relative to somebody who's more on the periphery. Um, so yeah, I would just say that generally speaking, that's what people are paying for, if you will. I mean, when they, when they buy a relay, they're paying that person essentially for their power and maybe a slice of the, of the time of the spectrum usage. Um, so it's, it's a good idea to focus on power. And in our case, we just want to minimize that as much as possible. And the way we mostly minimize that is by decreasing the bandwidth of our messages. So we don't want we want to make sure that as little bandwidth is used for the actual incentive protocol. And that's sort of practical, both from a power standpoint, but also just because there is limited bandwidth, you don't want, you want as little fraction of that sort of total bandwidth to be used for incentive relative to data. Otherwise you just have a payment network, which, you know, for Bitcoin, it might be all they want, 
But we're looking at this a little more broadly for communication as well. So as much that can go to sort of arbitrary communication, uh, really the better off we would, you know, that's our, our litmus test for, for improving the, the protocol. Excellent. And what about connectivity? So some devices may be off, off, offline at periods of time. How does it work in that sense? Like, would it store a message and send it later? Or uh, would you have to find another route if, say, one of the hops along your intended route is down? Yeah, that's another area that, you know, you bring it up. And I, I, I wish now I had written a little more about that in the, in the paper, because there's this idea of store and forward. And it's sort of the difference between a mesh or between a, like an SMS network or an instant message mesh network and an email network. So an email network is really set up for this idea of store and forward. So it's all on a continuum. I mean, at the, at the one end, you've got instant messages where you really expect communication to be sort of instantaneous. But at the other spectrum of, you know, side of the spectrum, you really have email, which, you know, back in the day might've taken a day to get through the network. Or maybe you don't get it until you log in and, and sort of pull down your email back, you know, how that used to work. So I really think probably both will be useful. Um, you know, I can imagine a case where store and forward is actually pretty useful for somebody who doesn't need immediate replies. So, and maybe as you're moving around, since we're imagining, a, you know, a, a mobile mesh network, it could be that your message goes out to a, to a relay that you've got a channel with. But then they don't forward it perhaps for some period of time because they're also moving around and maybe they come within range. So uh, that's something unexamined, but I would like to examine uh, at some point to see how that could change the dynamics of, of this system and you know, make it a little more flexible. Because that would, that would definitely, by using time in the equation, you know, that, that would open up more chances for a message to get delivered. Uh, and they're also, again, doing some stuff about the, you know, they're looking into this question too, a little bit for the Lightning Network. I can't remember the name. Maybe you remember it, but I think they call them like HODL pay or something like that, where it's like a store. Uh, HODL invoice? Yeah, HODL invoice. That's the one I was thinking of, right? So you can think of like a HODL invoice where they have much longer times for delivery of that invoice. Well, again, that could just be the same for a message, for a data message. So, so it's definitely thinking along the same lines here. <laughs> Excellent. And what about the idea then, uh, one other question is when you send this message along the lot 49 protocol or along that network, is it that there might be multiple competing messages and people are sort of competing because they want to be the one who relayed it and then therefore they get some of the incentive? Or is it more like only once, you know, only one uh, version of it is trying to fly around the network? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, what we wrote in Lot 49 really imagined there to be a fixed route, but we sort of have under the future directions things to investigate this idea of more of a, just a broadcast, and then more of a, a bidding, if you will, you know, sort of a bidding to deliver. So you could, you could really imagine somebody who's a relay or even the sender themselves to basically send out the same message to multiple people. I guess, again, to sort of find a, a lightning analogy, it'd be like, uh, what is it? Map uh, or um, yeah, multi-path payments. AMP, atomic multi-path payments. That's payment. the one yeah. I was thinking of, right? So AMP. You could think of AMP. You know, you could imagine overlaying a system like that, but instead of where AMP, where you want them all to be delivered, it would be sort of a first come, first serve for delivery. Um, I think there's something there. It's a little. It was a little too complex to really go into in a, in this particular in this version of our white paper, but certainly something we've thought about and and. It, it, from a market standpoint, it does have some interesting qualities there. On the other hand, you also want to make it, you don't want people to expend energy and not actually get 
you know, paid for it. So it kind of goes sort of these are fighting a little bit, you know, these these concepts. Yeah, no, I think the way you've got it at the moment is probably it probably makes sense. But just curious out of whether that was an idea. Um, okay, and also I like I like that you're using Bitcoin rather than creating your own shitcoin for it because <laughs> you know I think that's more you know socially scalable and it's more resilient to the downtime as well. Yeah, I mean bootstrapping a new token is something we considered. You know, I got to say we started this project in 2017, so you got to you got to look at all options. Um, and m- mostly what we were looking at basically is trying to use um, some sort of less cryptographically conservative pairing schemes. So you may have heard people talk about BLS signatures. Um, that's a technology that isn't likely to appear on Bitcoin, but would give, you know, really radically reduced bandwidth for payments. So I we spent a long time kind of going down that path. Um, but, but ultimately, sort of what was the, what pushed us back to, to Bitcoin was that more than the technology, you know, when you're looking to bootstrap a network, more than the technology is really the community. So finding a, a large growing community that is technically aligned with, with what we want to do um, really is more important than, you know, like, you know, in the Bitcoin world, this is, or in the crypto world, this is true too. There might be some other projects out there with, you know, more cutting edge technology, but at the end of the day, it's really the shelling point is around the, the largest technology or the largest and most sort of advanced technological community out there. So that really was the deciding factor, I would say. I mean, and now that we're really in that camp, uh, you know, like sort of really embracing it, you know, a lot of what's coming down the pike for Bitcoin really is very, um, you know, well aligned with what we want to do technologically. It may not be as radical as something like BLS signatures, but what's coming down, you know, what's what people are proposing uh, in the development community, things like, um, uh, just blanked on it right now, but um, Taproot, that's the one I was thinking of, you know, things like Taproot, which are really meant to save block space, also have the nice side effect that they save just basic space for, um, uh, you know, you know, like the communicating transactions are also smaller. So you're not just saving bandwidth for community, you know, you're not just saving block space, but you're saving bandwidth. Uh, which really works into uh, what we're looking at. I mean, anything, and this is like philosophically, I think how we are most aligned with Bitcoin, with the project we're doing. Um, you know, other projects have other sort of concerns, but the the real overriding concern, as as we've learned in 2016, is is keeping the footprint, the, keeping the uh, resource usage of the network as minimal as possible to keep it maximally decentralized. And that's really critical for doing a decentralized communication network is having the, the most you know, conservative view towards resource use. So this could be on a Raspberry Pi. This could be on a low-end cell phone. Uh, it could be over you know, maybe different transmission technologies. Maybe you know, instead of uh, you know, what we're looking at is this sort of low-raw technology, but, or not low-raw, sorry, it's ISM band technology. Um, but you could imagine like what Elaine Au did with a high-frequency radio, it's even lower bandwidth than what we're, we're sort of looking at. Um, so anything you can do to keep the, you know, both the bandwidth and the sort of computing technology, uh, low resource usage, it just opens it up and decentralizes, you know, where this protocol can actually run. And of course, if it runs on the low end devices, it can run on a high bandwidth, you know, desktop computer, but, you know, you want to set that bar as, as be as conservative, essentially, and set that bar as, as low as you can. So, so anyway, this is just a long roundabout way of saying why, you know, we really, you know, had to entertain other ideas, but, but the over, you know, the overwhelming 
um, sort of solution was to go with Bitcoin, you know, and I think as far as I know, there are no other networks who have made that choice. And there are other projects out there that are like community, uh, they call them wireless community networks. Uh, one that I think is really good is this Althea project. And they created sort of a lightning based payment system. Um, but they made, they basically don't use Bitcoin. So, you know, that I, as far as I know, we're the only ones that sort of taken that approach. And, you know, I really believe that's, that's going to be a deciding factor for us. Yeah, you might win some supporters who want to uh, stack some stats while they uh, participate in the Lot 49 network, right? <laughs> sure. And I, I mean, <clears throat> I'm sure you've run a Lightning network. You know, even if you're getting three or four sats a day or, you know, not even that, that motivation is, is way over, you know, it's way more than that sort of financial motivation you might get. You know, it's, it's really, uh, you know, even if you kind of think of them as game tokens, there is a real motivation there to, to earn something. Um, in fact, one of the most requested features for just Gotenna generally is to see how many messages you relay for other people. So, you know, if you're getting paid, you're also finding out how important you are to the network. And, you know, for people who maybe aren't in it for the monetary reasons, out, you know, of, of stacking sets, may still just be enthusiasts and want to know and want to know in a way that can't be gamed. You know, it's, it's not a meaningful metric if you know somebody's out there, like, you know, this happens in like online gaming. If somebody can tweak the software and give themselves infinite points, well, then how many points you have isn't that important. But if you know it's a cryptographically secure measure of your contribution, that's motivating. You know, that's that's a very fundamental way for people to feel like they're giving back to the network that they're using. So yeah, it all, it all works together. You know, these incentives, you know, they, they really have a powerful impact. And it's not just the monetary, it's just, uh, you know, just knowing what you're doing. Fantastic. Uh, one other question around the topology of the proposed Lot 49 network. In the paper, you mentioned about how this concept of edge nodes, right, would be net payers, right? And so there's potentially some parallels there with the Lightning Network. And if you listen to guys like Alex Bosworth, he'll talk about, well, consider stock and flows. And we'll need to think about, you know, things like channel rebalancing. And, you know, over at Lightning Labs, they're talking about ideas like loop in and loop out. Would there be equivalence in the Lot49 protocol or proposal? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I did a little economic modeling of this, um, you know, back of the napkin mostly, but there is this pretty, you know, easy to imagine system where if you're in the middle of a dense mesh, you're likely to be relaying messages as much as you might be sending, um, or messages are going through you in two directions, basically. Um, but if you were at the edge of the network, you would be like a private node in, in Lightning where you're you're only sending payments. So you're you're likely to be a net, you know, you're you're a net payer of fees. Um, and the net so you've sort of got that guy at the edge who's a net payer. You've got people in the middle who might they might be earning what they need to send payments. So they're gonna kind of net out. You know, they relay enough to pay for their own messages. And then you're gonna have people who have sort of taken on special roles like gateways or people who connect disconnected networks. Those are going to be um, people who are more in demand and probably, like you said earlier, maybe have a queue of messages they could send and are likely to take the highest payment or the most payments. Um, so those nodes are going to be the ones that are more net earners of, of credits. Uh, and, and I didn't mention this before, but the network probably won't get rid of the ability for people to broadcast without any incentives. So if you're one hop away from somebody, it wouldn't make sense to send an incentive, for example. That would be a free free connection. So in really dense places, you'll find that also being a factor. 
Um, so yeah, these economic questions, that's something that we're going to model, but I think also you won't really know until you get kind of unleash people's creativity to see how they can stack sats on the, on the mesh. <laughs> I love it. So look, let's talk a little bit about attacks or risks with this kind of proposal. So firstly, what about this potential of spam or like DDoSing it to try and, you know, uh, grief the network or take up capacity? Yeah, I mean, this is something that I think, you're, you know, you're right to observe most P2P networks have this, this potential. Um, uh, and a wireless mesh network has, has even like a different sort of attack vector. Um, I mean, you, you could just DDoS by creating your own custom client and just not following the protocol. Um, but probably easier than that, if you just wanted to spam your network, is to just put a radio jammer and just try to jam people around you. Because that's essentially what you'd be doing by not following the protocol. And, and the only way around that is essentially just to route around it. So, so while somebody who's a griefer could grief some local area, their local nodes are going to stop talking to them and route around them or, you know, and that's sort of the, the way you have to think about that. Um, and it, it probably would also, you know, you, yeah, you just, you just can't avoid that, but what you can do is localize it. So I, I think that's probably the way this thing would develop. Um, the spam question is a little bit different. So the spam would be, I mean, I think about it as let's say somebody sets up an IOT device that measures, I don't know, the wind or something. And they, and they just want to send out packets and they never want to relay and they never want to, um, they never want to, um, yeah, they don't want to relay for anyone else. They just want to send out, you know, the weather. Um, if you didn't have a token or some unit of, of, of um, you know, ec economic sort of unit you use to pay for those messages, well, there really would be no disincentive for somebody to do that all day long everywhere. Um, by having a token, by having basically Bitcoin payments and that be real value too, um, you're going to cut, you're going to create a cost for spam. Um, so somebody can't really do that unless they're also participating by relaying other people's messages. So, so I think those two risks really are somewhat ameliorated. I mean, the spam is really ameliorated by the, by the payments. DDoS isn't so much, but it would at least be localized. You know, people would have an incentive to route around it. I mean, who knows, maybe if this becomes really popular, there's an incentive to triangulate that guy and, you know, <laughs> shut off his power. Right. Or yeah. like, as I understand with the Bitcoin, um, there are certain bad nodes and I think Greg Maxwell has a list and basically if you're a bad <laughs> node, you get on the ban list, right? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't really, that's why I was saying ultimately it kind of comes down to somebody just running a white noise generator on all spectrum, you know, like somebody could do that, but, um, you know, they can't on the internet, it's a little harder to do that, but, uh, but I guess it's the same. I mean, even with, with botnets and stuff, there's only so much you can do. But there's only so much they can do too. Um, you know, they can they have to focus one place or another. So it's at least you can't spam the whole network or you can't DDoS the whole network. I think that might be the the, the best um, protection in a mesh network because it is. Right. I mean, if you think of it in the centralized network, a DDoS is really just turning off the internet, like we talked about at the beginning. I mean that that is that is what the governments do when they shut off the internet is they denial of service their users. Um, so you still don't have that done, that sort of ultimate master off switch <laughs> and you can't route around it as easily. Um, and, and I guess one other thing on that topic, one last thing is if people are using centralized networks and there is also, you know, even a rudimentary mesh network, it really has a sort of creates a sort of, sort of a herd immunity to the government who might think about shutting off the centralized networks. 
I mean, if they know it's going to be ineffective at accomplishing what they want to accomplish, then the whole idea of, of shutting off the internet sort of loses its its appeal. It's sort of like having a better alternative or uh, BATNA, right? Having a credible alternative kind of means they can't uh, shut down the centralized one. Exactly. Great. And what about uh, like message tampering? Is that something that our typical encryption and digital signatures will be used as a mitigation for that? Yeah, I, I would say so. Um, I mean, there are a few places where this might, you know, where it might be a little special. I mean, messages for sure, you could just encrypt them. There's also the routing information. So that's also a future topic we want to look into. Are there ways to sign and, and or, you know, maybe not encrypt, but sign routing information to kind of help make sure that people don't uh, fake the network routing layer. Um, but that's, that's, that's something that there is a fairly good literature on. Um, so we, I didn't put anything about that in the Lock49 protocol, but, but I think that is a place where if you're thinking about message tampering, I would look more at the routing protocol and ways to really secure that. It's like, it's, uh, uh, you maybe hear people talk about um, BGP um, networking and how that can be spoofed. And that's essentially a networking spoof. And, but there is a whole literature on how to get around that. It just hasn't been implemented. Um, so BGP secure, for example. Um, but that, I think that's probably that's probably where there's a little more research to look into it. Right. And I suppose one of the big risks, and I, I think we've sort of touched on this as well, is this risk of insufficient take up or routing partners, therefore impacting the coverage and the reliability. But I suppose, as we were mentioning, it's really about having, well, the stacking sats incentive, <laughs> there's a bit of gamification, uh, and having a community around it is probably probably some of the mitigations. Would you, is that your view? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's hard to predict where this would have the greatest take up, but but definitely, you know, communities that need it the most are, are going to be the ones that, that overcome that zero start problem. So that's true. Great. Another one I noticed is in the paper, there's talk about swapping XPubs between nodes to save on the space um, because obviously we're dealing with lower power devices. We're trying to compress the transaction. So it's trying to save on sending the payment address. But presumably, if you're swapping XPubs, does this come at any loss of privacy? Yeah, I mean, privacy, if you read through the white paper, you'll see we don't really talk a lot about privacy. Uh, and, and part of that is just because we needed to limit the scope of the paper. Um, but the, the other part of it is that you've got a sort of physical security built into a mesh network. Um, you know, you, the, the, the normal, like normally when you're dealing with these questions on, an, on the internet, you always have to assume that there's some mapping between your, your node and, and your real name, you know, your, your true name. Um, and that's, that's something that comes from your ISP. They might know your true name or your, your phone has a Mac address which ties it to whatever messages you send. But, but here in a mesh network, you decide what your ID is and there's nobody else who can basically, uh, you know, so if you change your ID, you basically change your identity. Um, so I think, you know, that's sort of where the, the, the fundamental privacy comes from is just the physical privacy of being on a mesh network. Somebody, the cost of tracking you down and recording your metadata is a lot higher than it would be in a a centralized network where somebody just taps one server and they get it all for free. In a mesh network, somebody would have to be on every street corner listening to packets in order to to sort of have that level of of surveillance. Um, but but it is something to to research. I, I mean, I think there's probably solutions to that. And you know, this is sort of the easiest solution to propose is the XPub, but there are a lot smarter cryptographers out there. And part of putting the paper out there is to get their ideas about how we might do this in a smarter way. 
So it's a good observation though, absolutely. Excellent. So look, let's now talk about what's needed in our traditional Bitcoin and Lightning network to help enable some of these ideas that you've come out with in lot 49. So some of them are, you know, Schnorr, L2, SigHash, no input. Did you want to offer some comments on that? Yeah, I'll just go through it, you know, really quickly. But I do encourage anybody who's sort of technically minded to, to you know, look at our white paper and especially the appendices, which go a little more into the detail. Um, so these, there's some technologies that are already been proposed for Bitcoin. One is Schnorr signatures. Everybody's talked a lot about that. And what we get in our protocol from that is USIG, which you know was was proposed as a way to aggregate signatures with Schnorr. Um, and by you know by aggregating signatures, what that means if you've got two um, 64 byte signatures and you can aggregate them into one 64 byte signature, you've essentially reduced your bandwidth by half. So for us who are looking at really minimizing our bandwidth, that's a big win. Um, L2 is a little more unexpected. Um, when we really looked at the protocol. Um, it allowed us, we believe it allows us to make what's called simplex payments. So the payer signs a message to the receiver, but the receiver doesn't have to, just doesn't have to respond to update the state of that payment channel. So it's really only the person receiving the payment that has to, um, has to sign, who has to send their signature. So um, that's, that's, a different than the, that's different than the current system. And we believe that also gives us a roughly 50% reduction in the just bandwidth between two nodes. And especially, you know, we are making updates between nodes. That's where most of your bandwidth is going to be. You really only set up and close transactions infrequently, but you're constantly making updates. So that we think also has a significant impact on the, on the bandwidth. Um, you, you also mentioned uh, SIG hash no input and uh, like any previous output. Uh, those are also proposals. Actually, any previous output is a replacement for SIG hash no input. It's the taprootification of that concept. Uh, and that's just... That's pretty exciting to see people really looking at not just doing taproot, but actually this would be a way to include what's necessary for L2 in taproot. So you get all the benefits of taproot and you get to do L2. Um, and these things are, you know, we don't expect this to happen in the next year or maybe even the next two years, but um, we see it coming and, and we think that it's going to be the thing that allows us to continue to improve this protocol. Um, we'll probably, you know, initially we have to do our tests either on a test net that has this when it's eventually implemented um, or just using the normal lightning protocol um, with the caveat that, you know, it may not be as efficient as it, as it would be. Um, and I, I, yeah, so that, you know, that's, that's, that's where those things work into the system. Fascinating stuff. I mean, it's, it's just really cool to see how all these different building blocks are kind of coming together <laughs> to enable this. So I think, as we kind of get to the end of the time, let's talk a little bit about next steps with Lot 49. Like, what's the timings? Would you need testing? Uh, do you need further feedback and review? What's what's kind of happening next? Yeah. So, I mean, just, just briefly, we're sort of in the mode where we just published it. So we just published, you know, our thoughts on on what this protocol could be, and we're just gathering feedback at the moment. But the next step will be to do a proof of concept implementation so that we can actually get people to use a, a simplified version of this protocol um, and, and allow us to get feedback from people how they would use it. And you know, we may even gamify it in some way. Um, it wouldn't be something for money, it would just be a way to get feedback on the on the system. Um, and yeah, so and and I think because a lot of technologies are still in flux, you know, we're hoping to get feedback from the Bitcoin techno community and see if they can suggest things we haven't thought of. 
to, to make this really more efficient as we get into the more nitty gritty of implementing it. Um, and so, yeah, hopefully when we get at least start to get the sort of a first version of a proof of concept, we would like to get people involved to help us test it uh, and give us, give us feedback. So I, I hope that it, you know, maybe by the end of the year, we'll have some very basic sort of proof of concepts that people can start playing with. Uh, that would be our, our goal at this point. And what sort of role will Global Mesh Labs be playing? Is it sort of like helping decide what the protocol is going to be and then kind of working with users who want to maybe make hardware or run software to, to be a part of the protocol? Yeah, the, the word that we like to use is it's, it's like incubating this concept. Um, so we're, you know, we are a subsidiary of, of Gotenna and we hope to implement this on our own hardware. But by doing it through Global Mesh Labs, we want to incubate this on other, pro, you know, on other pieces of hardware, other open source hardware, uh, you know, other other communication um, uh, layers. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think there's there's sort of a precedent for that in the Lightning world too. People who are really just shepherding the protocol. Um, maybe we have a, a different financial incentive in that we actually, if the protocol is successful, we would be one of we hope many hardware manufacturers who could really take advantage of it by selling compatible hardware. And um, actually, another question, just calling back to one more thing around the Lot 49 protocol. There's some discussion in the paper about reconstructing the implied transaction. Could you just outline a little bit about what's what's meant there? Yeah, this happens already a little bit in the Lightning protocol. So you you've got a transaction that you send to the that eventually could end up going on the Bitcoin blockchain, but what gets communicated between nodes isn't really that entire piece of information that could be on the blockchain. You're really just, you can have like a template and then you're just sending the parts that might change. And we would go like one step further than the lightning network goes. So whereas in the lightning network, they may be like, they may include a public key say, well, that's the place where we might use an XPUB. So that whole public key data doesn't have to be communicated. It can be a, it can be inferred by just knowing the public key that goes with perhaps some short ID. So this is all really just to save bandwidth. I mean, it's it's a way to make that protocol as as little, you know, as least as not as verbose as possible. And you know, the long pole in the tent is really the signatures. That's the thing you can't compress, as far as we know, <laughs> um, and and you have to communicate. So the protocol, from a bandwidth standpoint, really boils down to just how. Uh, to just the signatures. I mean, ideally, it's a it's a template with just the signatures and maybe you know some small representation of who it is communicating. Um, so that's that's this idea of implied transactions. You want to imply as much you know of a transaction template, and then you're just sending the critical information that that fills out that whole template. Hope that helps. Fascinating. And now, what can listeners do if they want to get more involved? Are you just looking for feedback at this point? Yeah. I mean, I. If people want to go uh, and give us feedback, we have a um, let's see, we have a um, Telegram channel. If people want to just chat about it and tell us what they think, <clears throat> and you can find this information from our website, uh, globalmeshlabs.org. Um, there's also a Twitter a Twitter channel if you want to follow us there. It's, it's at Global Mesh Labs, uh, and if anybody who wants to follow me and just sort of learn more about what I'm doing, uh, it's R E Myers underscore on Twitter, um, and I. I We'll tend to post what's going on. So yeah, I encourage people to look at the white paper, read through it, give us your feedback. Um, you can even do pull requests. This is really, we imagine this to be an open source protocol as well. So if people just want to get in there and make suggestions, we do encourage that. So yeah, please get in touch.
<laughs> that sounds excellent. So, look, thanks again for coming on, Richard. I think uh, it's been really educational and hopefully the listeners got something out of that. Yeah, thank you, Stefan. Really enjoyed it. Isn't it just incredible the way the network effects around Bitcoin just continue to become stronger and stronger? It really is just better money and that's the way people are thinking about it and that's also why people are building on top of it and they are increasingly viewing it like this is civilizational infrastructure. That's why we've got Blockstream beaming down the blocks from a satellite. That's why people like Richard are trying to build a mesh networking protocol and incentivized routing with Bitcoin. So go and check out the proposal, go and have a look at Global Mesh Labs, jump in the Telegram chat group and chat with Richard as well. So remember, the links for that are all in the show notes, which you can find at stefanlevera.com. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. And also just wanted to say thanks for everyone who helps share the podcast. I see that on Twitter and I see people giving it shout outs and all that. So really appreciate all your help there, guys. Thanks. That's it from me and I'll speak to you soon.